And uh, Romans chapter number 9, let's all stand as we read the Word of God here this morning. Verse number 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the power, the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." Interesting message here this morning. I'm really not preaching this text, but there's so much that could be preached and taught out of this text. But I'm really not preaching it, but everything that I'm going to be talking about, we find stuff in this text that is 100% relevant. What I want to talk to you about this morning is trusting a God that you'll never figure out. Trusting a God that you'll never figure out. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I thank you for your grace. And as I have already publicly confessed, we need your grace here this morning. Lord, we live in a generation of scoffers and doubters and skeptics, agnostics and atheists. Lord, some justifiably so, things that they have seen in religion and in Christianity. And Lord, it breaks my heart that so often your people are the ones who discredit you the most. May it not be ever said of us. May it not be ever said of anyone who's here and part of this congregation. But God, may we be faithful. May we add to your word credibility rather than blaspheme it. But we live in a generation, Lord, they don't know you. And they question and they challenge and uh, they indict uh, your existence. Lord, even if they believe that you exist, they certainly question your goodness and your integrity. Lord, you are a holy God. And we, we worship you and we praise you for your holiness. There is nothing imperfect about you. Lord, you've always been perfect and you always will be perfect. And Lord, we read about your power and your glory and your wrath. And God, you are the God of creation. You can do whatever you want. 
But Lord, your word tells us that everything that you do is consistent with your nature. Lord, I can't say that about myself. Lord, I, I fail of my own standard daily, but you never do. Lord, I pray that we'd say some things here today that would make a difference in people's hearts and lives. Someone who is having doubts or questions, being challenged by the philosophies of this world, perhaps there'd be someone here that's dealing with people like this. We hear it every day, and I pray that we'd give them some ammunition, if you will, to fight this good fight of faith, to earnestly contend for the faith. Lord, help us. If there be anyone here today that's lost without Jesus Christ, Lord, may the Holy Spirit draw them to you. God, give us what we need from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. As I said, our opening text really just sets the tone for the common debates and challenges that go against the existence of God and against the integrity of God. I had some optional titles for this sermon today. I could have entitled it, Creation Critiquing Its Creator. I could have titled it, Convicts Judging the Judge. And that's exactly what we experience in common culture today. And, you know, it's always been around. In fact, back the psalmist dealt with it. He said, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, challenging the existence and the integrity of God is nothing new, but wouldn't you agree that it seems to be more prevalent today than ever? It seems like almost everyone that I witness to today that you hear these typical questions or challenges. Now, before I say and start talking about what those questions and challenges are, I want to throw this out here, and I think it's important. When God is challenged... You will notice in his word that he doesn't defend himself. You know why? Because he doesn't need to. We don't add anything to God by believing in him. He doesn't need us. He never did and he never will. We don't add anything to him by believing in him, by loving him, by trusting him. It doesn't make him any better. He's always been perfect. He's always been holy. He always will. He cannot lie. He cannot change. He is a holy God. And he spoke this creation into existence. He made you and he made me. He is the creator. Isaiah chapter 55, this is what God says when he's been challenged. He doesn't answer the questions He doesn't prove himself, but rather he said in verse 8 of Isaiah 55, he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's why I confess to you here this morning that I cannot do adequate an adequate job on addressing this topic here today. Now, so much of man's reasoning is behind the concept of, listen, if he can, then why doesn't he? If God could have stopped something bad from happening, why didn't he? Can you imagine those of you that are raising or have raised children, if you carried that logic consistently into your parenting? You know, you can, just because you can, 
give your child something that they want doesn't mean that you do it. Does that mean that if you don't give your child what they want you to give them, then they're justified in saying, my parents don't exist? Even though their parents continue to provide a home and food and take care of them each and every day, they tell their school kids, you know what, I don't believe in my parents. Or they start bad-mouthing their parents and an indictment against their parents that, oh, they're not, they're mean and they're unfair. Isn't that what kids say today? That's not fair. I never did that with my parents, especially my mother. I know exactly what would have happened. She would have said, I'll show you what's fair. (laughs) I mean, seriously, if you've ever got punished for something that your brother or sister did, that was unfair. But how many times did you get away with something that you should have been punished for? You don't have, we don't ever remember those in our, uh, our record keeping, do we? But God knows everything about us. And so you can't be consistent. Hey, you know, as parents, sometimes as our children get older, there are things, you know, we, we badmouth the helicopter moms, right? You know, well, that's a bubble wrapping mom. They just try to protect their kid from everything. And listen, I don't think that helicopters and bubble wrap is a good way to parent. I think parents ought to be caring, parents ought to be protective, but we got to let our kids grow up, right? So would you agree that just because you could have protected your child from something, does that always mean that you should have? You should have intervened? Hey, as your kids get older, especially as they become teenagers, guess what you get accused of? Of being smothering, controlling, dictatorial, You know what's going to happen if you parent the way that everybody's saying God ought to parent, we're going to have the same indictments against us as if we didn't do anything. What are the major philosophical arguments? They are numerous, but I've narrowed it down to just two basic concepts just for sake of time. The major philosophical arguments against God is... First of all, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or if God is able to stop bad things, why doesn't he? Sometimes these are legitimate questions. Listen, if 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 somebody who doesn't not sure about God and they experience one of these things, some bad thing happening to them, I can understand their question. But the reality of it is most of these are not legitimate questions, but rather they are usually indictments, they're accusations, they're challenges. Just as we read in our text here, who art thou that repliest against God? Man has a tendency when things don't go his way and if he doesn't understand, then he has a tendency of shaking his fist at God and saying, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. And it's the equivalent of a child saying, I'm going to hold my breath if I don't get my way. Once again, I know what my mom would have said. She would have said, let me pull up a chair. This is going to be fun. You say your mom was mean. No. My mom was intelligent. She was wise. And she was righteous. She knew what was best for me. If she would have given me everything that I want, it wouldn't have been best. I would have ended up being 
a monster, or for some of your sake, a bigger monster than I am. That's just to make some of you happy there. So some of them are legitimate questions, but most of them are just false indictments. I have a message that I preach. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards' famous message back in the 1600s, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Yeah, I have a message that I preach that's about modern day people, and it's called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners, because that's what we're dealing with. That's a more appropriate message for today. People aren't worried about being in the hands of an angry God. They're more worried about how God is treating them. Now, be honest. You probably didn't have these questions until something bad happened that affected you. You're fine with God until something bad happens to you. I call this, and I know some of you are going to give me a hard time over this. I call it the my dog is in heaven syndrome. Now, I felt this, by the way, okay? I've had some pets in my lifetime, but our last pet, I actually, it got into my heart. Not as much as my wife. Well, you can take that both ways. The pet didn't get in my heart as much as my wife did, but the pet didn't get in my heart as much as the pet did get in my wife's heart. Both are true. But when our dog died, we took it to the vet and we had to have her put down. I wept. And uh, it, it wasn't an easy thing. And I still, I grieve when I'm reminded, once again, not as much as her, but I still grieve. And I can remember when that pet that was a personality and a life that was part of our family, when it was gone, there was that natural temptation to want to believe that that pet is in heaven. And some of you, you you don't even like me talking about this. It's uncomfortable. It's okay. I have to tell you the truth. If you really think about this, and you want to believe that your dog is in heaven, well, let me ask you a question. Where do you draw the line? Does that mean that your neighbor's dog, I mean, they got that mean pit bull that attacked your dog and messes in your yard and you step in it and you want to take, a, you know, you want to take that dog out yourself, but your neighbor loves their dog. Is their dog going to heaven? No, you don't want their dog to go to heaven. How about in the rest of the animal world? What about the coyotes and the wolves and all the other mean, horrible predators that are out there? Where do you draw the line? There's no standard. You know what you're doing? You're saying that I want to believe that my pet's in heaven because I loved it. So you become the God of your own universe. But you cannot be consistent that way. And I will say this, that one thing I'll say about the God of this Bible, at least he is consistent. What he does, his judgments and his wisdom are always consistent with who he is and what is righteous. Our sense of righteousness is generally a masked form of narcissism. 
But God's righteousness is always consistent. Now, real quickly, let me give you uh, five of many. These are kind of just the main ones. These five philosophical criticisms of God. I just Googled these. You can hear all kinds of things. But the first one is evil. And we're talking about the philosophy of this world. And I'm telling you what the other, all of the opponents of God, what they have to say. These are their, uh, they've reasoned it out in their mind and their philosophy. Uh, evil, because evil exists, then God cannot be all-powerful, all-knowing, and loving and good at the same time. Because if he was loving and good, he would not allow evil uh, to exist. That's their rationale. Number two, pain. Because God allows pain, disease, and natural disasters to exist, he cannot be all-powerful and also loving and good in the human sense of these words. You know, humanly speaking, it sounds good, makes sense. Number three, injustice. Destinies are not allocated on the basis of merit or equality. In other words, according to the God of the Bible, Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Now, if you've been to any funeral, and you know, I've never been, I've never been to a funeral where you know the person, the, the preacher got up there and said, you know, your loved one is not in heaven. And I've done some funerals where I pretty much felt that way, and I wouldn't say I knew that because I don't know people's hearts. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't want to be unkind or unloving. But at the same token, if I don't have something to go on according to what this book says, I ain't going to preach them into heaven. And it's not because I don't want to. I'd love to comfort them. They're hurting. But I'm not going to comfort them with something that's going to dishonor the integrity of God. That's not going to help them. They need to understand what the gospel is all about. And according to Jesus, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So you've got to be saved. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what I've got to tell them because that's what God's word says. And so some people think that God just arbitrarily picks some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. In that case, I would say I, I agree with the rationale of the skeptics out there because that kind of God is not consistent. There is a criteria that God gives in order for people to go to heaven and people to, whether you go to heaven or hell. But they say that, hey, it just doesn't seem fair or just, so, you know, God cannot be all-powerful and all-knowing and also just in the human sense of the word. Number four, multiplicity. Multiplicity, since the gods of various religions differ widely, only one of these religions or none can be right about God. And so if you can't know for certain, then it's easier to pick one, which brings us to number five, simplicity. Since God is invisible and the universe is no different than if he did not exist, it is simpler to assume that he does not exist. Now, these are five of the major tenets of philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is trying to figure out life 
just with the mental processes that go on between our ears. You can just, you know, think your thoughts and you can, uh, you know, the, the person who evidently has figured out life is like Winnie the Pooh. Think, think, think. Think, think, think. And so the way that they see the world and themselves in life, it all came from what they thought up that made sense to them. Now, obviously, there are philosophies that differ from one another. Why? Because we all think differently. I promise you, me and my wife think very differently. Sometimes I'm very thankful for that. Other times, less than thankful. And she would say the same thing. While God is certainly... Excuse me, I didn't read that right. While God certainly doesn't need you or me to defend him, here are some reasons we believe what we believe about him. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord says, Come now, let's reason together. Let's talk about this. Let's think about this. Number one, there are no belief options without faith. The world will tell you that that's not the case. So you people who believe in God, you, 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 it's a fantasy. It's make-believe. You, you don't have any proof that God's ex God exists, and so you're following a fantasy. It's all made up, man-made religion, and so you're foolish. You're, it's just a crutch. It's a weakness. That's what they say about the belief in God. But the reality of it is there is not a belief option that exists that is without faith. If you're going to reject or refuse to believe the God of the Bible, then which possible theories are you going to believe? Are you going to believe science? That's what public education and higher education says in this America. Science has facts of evolution Whereas religion talks about some make-believe creator, and yet the reality of it is science has no proof of evolution. And every time that actual science discredits evolution, what do they do? They take their theory and they just expand it another couple billion years, and their hypotheses just add some other things that make the common person who's trusting in the scientists, trusting in the teacher, thinking that, oh, they, they have an education, they've learned all of this, and so I'm here for them to teach me what I'm supposed to believe. They have no idea what they're talking about. They just don't have the integrity to admit it. Something exploded into nothing, or nothing exploded into something, I should say. I got that wrong. Nothing exploded into something, and something evolved over billions and billions of years, and we have the universe, and we have all of the complex systems that we're looking at, that we experience. It's just, it, it takes more faith to, be, to believe in evolution than it does to believe in God. And that's the reality of it. 
So every time science is disproved, they just add more speculative theories to it to just further complicate it. You tell a lie loud enough and long enough, everybody's going to believe it. Uh, how about philosophy? I've already given you some philosophies. There's many options to choose from. Colossians 2 verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. That word spoil there is not talking about bacteria in your meat. It's talking about spoil as when in a battlefield back in the old times when an army came in and defeated the other army, they would take all of their valuables away from them. The Bible says, God warns us, he says, beware lest any man spoil you. They're going to take away the valuable things of your life. How are they going to do it? They're going to do it through philosophy and vain deceit. And then, of course, religion. Religion. Jeremiah 2, verse 28. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee, God says? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. Listen, I've got a God that has not saved me from every trouble. But I can tell you, I've got a God that has been very real and very powerful in ways that I know it. I can't prove it to you, but I have seen God work and things that, listen, to me, because I know what's going on behind the scenes, I know what's going on in this mind of my mind, I'd have to say it's a miracle. I saw God change my life into a teenager that sat in church, endured it, suffered through it, wasn't one bit interested in it. In my heart of hearts, I knew it was true and it was right, but I didn't want it. I wanted the pleasures that this world had to offer. And I experienced the miracle of the Holy Spirit of God getting through this hard heart of mine at a time that I didn't even want him. I wasn't seeking after God. He came looking for me. And when I finally got tired of resisting him and I opened up my heart to trust him, oh, the changes that he made. I can't prove that in a court of law, but I am really satisfied that it was not me that did it. I didn't turn over a new leaf. It was God. It was something spiritual and supernatural that happened in my heart. I got, I got born again. I, got, I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. And once again, I don't have to prove it to you, but I sure am enjoying it myself. Israel's got all these false gods. You know, listen, God doesn't, I'm not saying God has never proven himself. You remember the contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And Elijah, you know, Elijah said, if you're, if you're God, then answer by fire. And God answered by fire. And everybody immediately at that time, oh, the Lord, he is the God. How long did that last? lasted until Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And then everybody's afraid of Jezebel. And so they went right back to their Baal worship. Which proves that when God has proven himself, it doesn't change man's heart. Sight never produces faith, but faith will produce sight in your life. 
I, I can't get inside the head of God. And people ask, well, why did God do it this way? Why did God create a Garden of Eden? Why did God create a tree of knowledge of good and evil? I can't get inside of God's head and figure out what he was thinking and why he did that. I, I, I don't know of all those things, but I'll tell you what I can say, that whenever I've just trusted him and took his word, he's always proven himself to be faithful, good, merciful, kind, and gracious. He's proven himself time and time again. If you'll trust his word, if you can't trust his word and take him at his word, then it's not true faith to begin with. Every option, science, philosophy, religion, every option has its merit or has merit in its reason, in its rationale. Which one is more reasonable? Well, you're going to have to decide that. But let me just implore you, be honest with yourself. What's really behind the choices that you're making? A lot of these people who say, I don't know that I can believe in God. It's not that they don't want to believe in God. They just don't want to be accountable to a holy God. They just don't want to, well, if the God's like that, then I don't want to believe in him. They don't like, I don't like, I don't like that God. But the truth of the matter is, and I believe this, that he's the only God there is. So I guess you're going to have to be honest with yourself, not lie to yourself, not deceive yourself. Number two, and I got to hurry here this morning. Number two, this is a simple but a profound point. I was kind of proud of myself on this one. Free will must be free will or it isn't free will. My wife was doing the PowerPoint. She's like, what? I said, well, it makes sense to me. I'm going to have to explain it. We are made in God's image. And when God warned that a certain choice would make man like him, he was telling the truth. Genesis 3, and the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. The man knew good before, but he didn't know good and evil, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know, it's interesting. It was free will. God said to Adam, of every tree of the garden, you can freely eat. But in the midst of the garden, he put two trees. I I think that the two trees were side by side. They're both in the midst of the garden. They could have eaten of the tree of life, but they chose the one that God said, don't eat it. You'll know good and evil. God, they had free will. You know, God gave free will to the cherubims. The Bible says that Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. The angels had free choice. You find that some, some left their first estate. They fell and they disobeyed God and that's where the devils come from, Satan and his angels. Freedom is not freedom without choices. You know, we all want to be free, right? But free will is not free will 
unless it truly is free will. I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that when God gives us free will, he's not patronizing us with a concept that's not legitimate. He's saying, I am making you in my image, giving you, making you a living soul, and because you're a living soul, you have the ability to make moral choices. The animal kingdom does not make moral choices. They just decide... Do I want gazelle or do I want rabbit? And I'm going to go kill and rip them up with my teeth and they eat them. Right. Poor bunny, poor Bambi. We think, well, what's the big deal? It is not a moral choice for them. It's just supper. Right. Some of them get supper. Some of them are supper. Yes. <laughs> That's the whole world except for man. We are different. No matter how we become, no matter how the world and its philosophies take God out of our conscience, it's still there. And it's undeniable. Freedom is not freedom without choices. And choices are not choices without consequences. It's not even a true choice if there's not you take this, this is what's going to happen. You take this, and this is going to happen. If there are no consequences, it's not even a choice. Right. Now, the original sin was Lucifer, the anointed cherub. He wasn't tempted by the devil. You can see I'm really, you can see my profundity is very simple. Remember when Satan said in Isaiah 14, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Is that not an interesting concept when you think about the temptation in the Garden of Eden? Oh, God does know that if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like him. You're going to be as God's. The devil, that's actually something that the devil told Eve that was true. Let me pack that up. It wasn't truth, but it was accurate facts. Because right. truth means that you're being honest about everything. You're not just using some facts to manipulate your will. You're being open. That's what truth is all about. If there were no reward or punishment in life, there would be no pleasure. Which brings us to the next point. Number three, belief without authority means life without purpose. You can believe a lot of different things. But if there's no authority behind your belief, then you're going to live your life undeniably without any real purpose. You can set your life to anything. Solomon talked about it in Ecclesiastes. You can do this and you can do that, but you're going to find that it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. It's not going to fulfill it's going to leave you emptier and emptier and emptier because you will know in your heart of hearts that what I'm living for is nothing outside of myself, so I really don't have a purpose. Revelation 4, verse number 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." 
Oh, preacher, I just feel like I'm living without a purpose. Well, there it is right there. There's your purpose. God created you for his pleasure. Don't challenge him. Don't question him. Well, that's not fair. Why did you allow that to happen? Listen, God is not up there for us. We are down here for him. Once again, not that he needs us, not that we add anything to, to him, but he brought us into existence for his own pleasure. If you're ever God, you'll understand. You can create anything that you want for whatever reason that you want to. But in the meantime, I highly recommend we just trust the one that can actually do that. He didn't create man because he needed us. He did it for his glory, his pleasure. The scriptures demonstrate that he desires fellowship with us. I don't know why. I don't know why. But he does. You can't fellowship with someone that doesn't have a will. You can communicate. They're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and machines. And you know what? You can even, I, I, for, for my kids' lesson, I have a little doll in my office just for kids' lessons. And you, you push the button, and this little rat doll says, I am a dancing princess. Speaks. I understand the words that it's saying. Even, even kids that genuinely play with their dolls, they're playing with them. They're not fellowshipping with them. God created us so that we could have fellowship with him and vice versa. Man's free will regarding morality is the crowning difference between us and the animal world. I've already said that. Now, quite, um, why did God create a test for Adam when he knew Adam was going to fail? It's a great question. Are you ready for the answer? Because he wanted to. And you know what? That's good enough for me. And it ought to be good enough for you. Number four, it's my last point, the issue of justice and the afterlife. There is no afterlife and accountability. Why not do whatever pleases you? Once again, that's what the animal world does. They just do whatever is instinctive. Hunt, eat, breed, die. They're brutal. They're selfish. Sounds a little bit like culture today. They eat, they drink, they breed. And then they die. I'd like to argue that the same inherent sense of justice that man has, listen, I, I never had, I never felt or even sensed that our pet, whenever the pet got in trouble, our pet would always associate an action with our reaction. And that's how you train dogs, by the way. And there were times where you could sense that this dog was intelligent enough to figure out what to do and what not to do. But never, never did I sense that that dog was questioning whether or not we were fair or not, whether it approved or agreed with our rules. And the reality of it is we know it didn't. It was never a part of it. 
And so I argue that the same sense of justice that God created in us is the same sense of justice that men use in the wrong way to question him. Because we're the only part of creation that has that sense of right and wrong and that sense of justice and injustice. If there is no afterlife, then life makes no sense whatsoever. It's futile. Not even worth living. And that's what, when people turn away from God, that's why we have suicide so prevalent today because we are training and teaching people in our school system that we came from an explosion and an amoeba and eventually a monkey and then we evolved to that. And so we have no accountability. There's no afterlife. There's no creator. Do whatever you want to do. Why do you think there is more mass shootings in schoolhouses today than has ever been in, I mean, it's, it's a, a modern thing, and it is totally consistent with taking God and accountability to our Creator out of the school system. It, it is no, um, it's no um, mystery why most of these things happen at schools. I hope nobody's misunderstanding what I'm saying. Life makes no sense. By the time we figure anything out in life, we die. By the time we get answers, nobody wants to, nobody cares what we know. Some of you older saints, you know that. You, you, you learn, you live, but none of these young people, they don't care what we have to say. They just want to stick us in a nursing home and get rid of us. There's no afterlife, then life makes no sense whatsoever. Even atheists and philosophers struggle with this inherent human need. It is universal and undeniable. For those who question the goodness and justice of God, may I remind you that God knows things that you and I don't know, and the game is far from over. Well, it just doesn't seem like God is fair and just. Oh, he'll balance it all out in his timing. There's a judgment coming. And the people that you think, the bad people that you think, oh, they get away with it and life's fine and peachy. Oh, it's going to all be balanced out and God knows that. And so speaking of which, let me give you my conclusion. And that is this, consider Job. We can read the story of Job and we see that all the things that Job was experiencing, we can read the end of the story and find out, you know what, God was in control, he knew what he was doing all along, he just didn't bother to let Job in on it. Job 1, verse 22, in all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. If you went through what Job went through, people today, most people today would, well, God doesn't exist. I've been perfect and righteous and I've eschewed evil. I've been faithful to the Lord and this is what happens. Job never charged God foolishly like people do today. Job 19 verse 25, he said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job kept his hope for the afterlife. 
He put, kept his hope in God that God's going to make all this right. One of these days, I'm going to see him. Job didn't understand God, but he trusted him. Oh, he had his moments. I wish I'd never been born. Oh, God. I mean, he, he, he had his moments where his feelings weren't exactly honoring God. But in the end, he said in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job knew, hey, I've got purpose. I trust God. I believe I'm just going to stay on path because God's got this. In the end, we see that God blessed Job with more than he had before. God knew what he was doing. There was something going on in God's world between Satan and God. And yeah, Job kind of ended up being, I mean, Job didn't put himself in that, that place. God did. God said, hey, devil, have you considered my servant Job? God used Job to, to give a, a deadly blow to Satan and everything that Satan stood for. Does he serve you for naught? You know, Satan is the one, and listen, all of this, well, it's just God's not fair. You know where that comes from? It comes from the devil. Yes. Oh, does Job fear you for not? Job's just being selfish, and God had to prove to the devil that, no, Job's not being narcissistic. Job trusts in me. Job became an instrument in the hands of God. No doubt, all that Job went through, God gave him the grace to be able to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I believe the Bible is true. I have experienced personally its authenticity many times and in many ways. I can testify to you that it is true and recommend it with all of my heart. But let's say for a moment that it is all make-believe. And when I die, then that's it. If that's the case, then that makes every possible way to live, whether it's religion, science, philosophy, if that's the case, that when we die, it's just over, every single possible way to live is just a delusion. And I want to say this morning, my delusion is better than your delusion. Why do I say that? Well, because I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. You have nothing to gain and everything to lose. They say that we're ignorant. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Makes sense to me. So as I close, and thank you for your patience this morning. I hope this is helping you because you're dealing with this. If you haven't, you will. How can you trust a God that you can't figure out? You know, the answer is simple. The same way you trust anything else in life, by faith. Any of you understand how the stock market works? But you still got retirement investments. Anybody understand your insurance policy? You pay your premium, don't you? 
You're trusting somebody, even though you don't understand them. Why would you trust Allstate, but you won't trust the God of this Bible who is tried and proven for over 6,000 years? Hebrews 11, verse number six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Will you trust him today? The choice is yours. Let's pray.